Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful uh, that you allow us to come into your presence through prayer. We have declared your praises. We have confessed our sin. And God, in your kindness, you tell us to bring all our requests before you. So we do so now. Uh, Father, we first bring forth the needs of our congregation. Father, we, we, we ask you to be with those battling health issues. And we ask you to be with Barbara McGurk, God, that you would continue to give her faith, allowing her to believe that you will not forsake her, God. Strengthen her, Lord. We pray for Jerry Green and Ken Tedder and their battles against cancer, God. We pray in your kindness that you would just surround them with your grace and your mercy. Father, we pray for Melissa Palou and Devin. With all that they have on their plate, God, we pray that you would just be with Melissa. We pray for clarity from the doctors, Father, to, to, to diagnose and to treat her exactly what is ailing her. Father, we do pray for all those who are, who are um, grieving this week. Father, whether it's a memory of a loved one, Father, uh, grieving over a relationship. God, I pray that as people grieve, that they would not grieve as the world does, as those who have no hope, but their grief would be, would be um, full of the gospel, that their hope has been uh, fulfilled in Christ through his resurrection from the dead. Father, we also just uh, ask that you would be with our nation, Father, and all the, the different uh, leaders of our, of our government. We pray specifically this morning for our congressmen, God, we, we know that they help enact laws in our nation. So, Father, we pray that you'd give them wisdom, Father, that they would not uh, try to push and pass an agenda that is not honoring of you. God, we pray that you would allow them to be wise and humble, Father, that they put forth laws that would honor you, that would um, punish the evildoer and praise those who do good. Father, we also ask that you would just be with uh, the church in our, in our town. Father, we pray that you'd be with... Uh, Northside Baptist Church this morning in Scott Davis. We pray, God, as he preaches the Holy Word of God uh, in the book of Matthew, God, that that congregation would be formed more and more into the likeness of Christ. We pray that you would bind them in a, in a holy love uh, for you and for one another. Father, now as we uh, come to this time together and, and, and digging into your, your precious Word, we pray that you would soften our hearts to hear your Word. Father, you know everyone's heart here. You know every beat of every heart. You know every hair on everyone's head. You know exactly what they need to hear today. So, God, I pray that I may decrease and that you may increase, that I may exalt the Lord Christ in my words. Father, that you would just preach through me by the power of your Holy Spirit and rest this message heavy upon the hearts of your people. God, I pray as we begin even preparing our hearts to take the Lord's Supper together, that we would desire to have true communion with you and with one another. So, God, we pray that you would use this humble offering of your, of your word uh, to edify, to purify, to strengthen, to convict, to challenge uh, the people of Park Baptist Church. Father, we pray if there's those here who do not yet know you, God, that your, uh, that your, po that your power would be made known to them, that their eyes would be open, that they would be, come under conviction by your spirit. Father, I pray in your kindness that you would just make much of this hour. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. When I was uh, 28 years old, I had the great privilege of preaching in a shanty village uh, off the uh, outskirts of Maracaibo, Venezuela. 
uh, I went there and wasn't really, didn't really know what to expect. I was 20 years old and uh, grew up in an in a upper middle class home. Never really saw the level of poverty uh, that I walked, that I saw when I walked into that town. Uh, literally, it was a shanty village, and every, every uh, house was made of tin. Uh, they had tin walls, and they had a, had a tin, tin roof. They slept on uh, the ground. Uh, they had a small uh, church building there. Uh, I was tasked to, to teach that day uh, on our trip, uh, and, I, and I went there. And, you know, you, you see this level of poverty, trash in the streets, and you're, you don't know what to expect when you walk into a, a church like that. And what I saw absolutely floored me. What I saw was joy. They had um, little possessions, and yet they had a passion for Christ. They had uh, a small room, and yet they gave sacrificially. In the world's eyes, they were feeble, and yet they were faithful in Christ. I've never, I'll never forget those moments of those kids' joy. And the parents' joy of, of celebrating what Christ has done for them. One of the reasons why I love the book of Philippians is because the joy that I saw in that church, I see all over the pages of this church. I see a joy and a passion for the Lord Christ. Uh, the church of Philippi didn't have much, didn't have tremendous resources, and yet they gave generously so that all would hear and believe in the gospel. I pray that as we work through this book, that we would become a joyful people. That the people of Park Baptist Church would be filled with joy, not because of what we have in this world, but what we have in Christ and what Christ has given to us in himself and in one another. Well, you notice on your bulletin, there is no outline. We're going old school. No outline today. Rich, you like that, don't you? Amen. Uh, well, we're going to begin with the first point of my outline that's not in the bulletin, is the start of the church. How did this church begin? Uh, so we, before we kind of look at Philippians, we want to go back and look at the book of Acts. So those of you who aren't familiar with the Bible, we, we start with uh, the historical book of the book of Acts is, is how the church was formed. So it begins after Jesus Christ ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit came down. The rest of it kind of talks about how the church uh, progressed in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, in, in chapter 16 of the book of Acts, we see the beginning of the church at Philippi. So I want you to go there with me. So turn in your Bibles, the book of Acts, which is a few uh, books back. It's written by the, uh, the Dr. Luke. So Luke chapter 16, I want you to see how this, this church began. We're going to begin in verses, verse 1 of chapter 16. This is important because this is going to kind of flow through the rest of our uh, fall as we study this book. So Acts chapter 16, verse 1. Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, a son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken by the, of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had, already, that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who, who were at in Jerusalem. So the churches, the churches were strengthened in faith, and they increased in numbers daily. 
So in the early church, there was this great controversy uh, between Jew and Gentiles. Who was going to be saved? What did the Gentiles have to do in order to be saved? So in Acts chapter 15, they had something called the Jerusalem Council. They all got together and said, okay, this is what we're going to mandate the Gentiles to do. We, we want them to abstain from sexual immorality and not to eat food that is strangled with blood, meaning that in order to have fellowship among the Jew and the Gentiles, don't eat food mixed with blood, right? Make sure that you can have uh, table uh, fellowship. And in the very next chapter, we see Paul and Timothy, now Silas and now with Timothy, going from church to church and passing on what the, uh, the elders had decided. And, and it's interesting because right after this idea of the Jews and all the things that were stirred up by the Jews, you see Paul going to a Gentile people. This is significant, which let me read the chapter, making a few comments as I go, and you'll see why this is so significant as we go. Verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us, plural, Luke and Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to preach the gospel to them. So notice that the only reason that Paul went to Philippi was because God specifically told him to go to Macedonia. One of the things you'll see as we unpack this book is there's a close relationship between Paul and the, the church at Philippi. Why? Well, because Paul knew he was supposed to be there because God sent him. God led him there by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you may have felt at different times in your life the Spirit of God leaning you or revealing you to go to certain places. Uh, I, I think that Paul had this vision, and he, he talked among the community and said, is this what we're called to do? And at that point, they said yes. If you feel that the Lord of, the Lord of hosts, the King of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit, is revealing you to do something, to go somewhere, follow that lead. But do it in the council of believers. Do it in the council of the church. Is God leading me to do this? We go on in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, he made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. He, we remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. Now these were probably God-fearing Gentiles who, who were gathering in, in, in a time of prayer. Notice that Paul, Paul's ministry was not haphazard, but it was specific and strategic. They went to this specific place because they wanted to engage people with the gospel. Verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord, hear thee, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. We see this all throughout the book of Acts. Someone hears the word because the Lord opened their eyes. They heard, they believed, and then what? They were baptized. That's the public confession of the faith in the Bible. 
in, in many circles, we think that walking an aisle after a service is the public idea of confession. Now, that may be well, and that may be good, and that may be helpful. Many of us probably came to faith because we walked an aisle at the end of a service. But biblically, and I think accurately, the waters of baptism is what makes the, the public profession of, that I believe in Jesus. Because it's not just a, a physical walking, it's a physical dunking and coming up. Right? There's a physical nature of that. So the first person we see saved here, we see a woman and her family. Look at verse 16. As they were going to a place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept on doing for many days. And this is a great line. I love Paul. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, just stop. Paul was greatly annoyed. You know, I think there's sometimes it's okay to be greatly annoyed. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. Turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So what you see here, you see a woman saved, then you see a slave girl saved. That we think, we can't fully know, but we think that she, was, she came to Christ. So the owners saw that their hope was, of gain was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. When they had brought them to the magistrate, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore their garments off and gave them orders to beat them with rods, and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safe, keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Notice that Paul preached the gospel, was faithful, and what happened because he preached the gospel? He was beaten, and he was sent to prison. If you are going to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, you are going to face trials. You are going to face persecutions. And young people, you're going to face far more persecutions than, than our senior saints in the room. Because America is becoming more and more hostile to the Christian faith. And yet, what are you called to do? You're called to walk with Christ. Whatever he brings your way. Whatever he brings your way. Because you'll see what happens here and what God does in the midst of these trials. So notice that Paul is here. He's growing in his heart for the people there. He, he sees this, this slave girl saved. He sees this woman and her household slave. And now he's in prison. And just look at verse 25. I think that Paul passed this on to the church at Philippi. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. One sentence up, they were beaten with many blows. And they probably couldn't sleep because of the pain on their backs. And what are they doing? They're praising God in song. There's something that happens when we sing unto the Lord that joy fills our hearts. And the prisoners who were around them were doing what? They were listening. Why would these people continue to trust in God after being beaten and imprisoned? Well, they were just following the footsteps of their master. Verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, 
till the foundations of the prisons were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. It was his job. He would have faced death anyway. Verse 28. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Not just them, but all of the prisoners. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Cyrus, Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house and took them in the same hour that night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Just notice this. Paul wanted to preach the gospel in Asia. Paul did not want to be in Macedonia. And yet God called him there. Right? He called him to a, a woman, which in that day is not your greatest convert because they don't have a whole lot of authority or power. Then, they, they, then, then they, he saved a slave girl, again, someone who was an outcast of society. And then he saves a Gentile Roman jailer. Because they were faithful to the Lord. I have no idea what the Lord is going to do in your lives. I have no idea where he's going to take you, who he's going to cross your path. But I know this, that God is working. God is working. Why do you have the job that you have? God has placed you exactly where he has you so that you could be a witness unto him. So maybe life is difficult. Life is challenging. Maybe, maybe you have a, have a difficult neighbor, but maybe God wants you to reach that neighbor for the gospel of the Lord Christ. Maybe God has given you a, a difficult family situation. Maybe, maybe your, your, your daughter or your granddaughter married the, the man that you don't like. Well, maybe God did that so you could reach him for the gospel of the Lord Christ. That's what we see here, right? We see salvation come upon the house. Now, the reason why that's, that's, this, this is important uh, there was a certain liturgy in Jewish culture uh, that they would wake up every day and they would recite these daily prayers. And one of the daily prayers that the, the average Jew of this time would recite, they would say, thank God that I was not born a woman. Thank God I was not born a slave. And thank God I was not born a Gentile. And what does God do? God saves the woman. God saves the slave. And God saves the Gentile to show that his salvation is for all. Paul and Timothy, along with Silas, came to Macedonia to reach those that no one else wanted. And he did it with joy. This would not be the first time, last time that Paul would be beaten and jailed because of his faith. But I want you to see that what Paul had there, he had joy. Beloved, can we stop complaining as a church for how bad things are going? Can we just have a little bit of joy and thank God for what he's given us in Christ? He has given us himself. When we had nothing, when we were far from God, living our own way, he opened our eyes, convicted us by his spirit so that we could have him. He gave us himself. And yet, so often we look at what we, we don't have. 
Do you know when every time you're reminded of what you don't have and what you do have, you're, you're falling under the, 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 the trap of the evil one? This is the same thing that Satan did in the garden to Eve. He made Eve and Adam doubt that God was good because of the provision that he had given him. God gave Adam and Eve every tree in the garden. Every tree but one. Trust in the Lord, beloved. So we see this church was founded because a a very specific call of God to Paul to go to this place, and he did so with joy. But notice it was not easy. And I think that when you see what happens there in Paul, how this congregation just comes with Paul and sticks with him. That's what you see throughout the rest of this book. Well, the second thing I want you to see, going back to uh, Philippians uh, chapter 1, is the saints of the church. The saints of the church. So we see Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. That word servant there is, is, the, is the Greek word doulos. Sometimes it's translated slaves. Sometimes it's translated servants. But Paul and Timothy view themselves as just ministers of the gospel of Christ, whatever come their way. They didn't care what happened, whatever came their way, their, their way. And the Philippians, when they read that, they would have known it. They would have known that Paul and Timothy were willing to be beaten so that they could, somebody else could hear the gospel. So maybe in our modern-day context, maybe God is calling you to, to be bold at your, at your job or to be bold in your classes uh, or to be bold with your neighbors, even if you're going to be rejected. The second thing we see here is the saints of the church. We'll look at the, the second part of verse 1. It says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. So it says to all the saints. Now, what is the, what is the idea of the saints? Well, the saint comes from the Greek word hagios or, or holy. These are the, the holy ones. These are the, the former uh, Gentile Roman jailer. These are the the former slave girls. These are the former ones who walked and lived in sin, who were called out of the world unto Christ to be made holy. And how did this happen? Well, it happened because they they publicly changed their allegiance from this world unto God through baptism, being buried with Christ, being raised to walk a new life. So there's two aspects of the idea of holiness in the scriptures that I really want you to grab onto. So the first is a, a positional holiness. Positional holiness. You see this, Paul unpacks it in, in Philippians chapter 3, but this idea of positional holiness is that when you give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, when you turn from your sins and you trust in Jesus Christ and you are, are willing to, to go public with that in baptism, what happens is this, is that Christ gives you His holiness. He imputes or he he gives or credits His holiness, His righteous life, a life that had no sin. He gives His life to you. So therefore, believer, any time God looks at you, He does not primarily see a sinner. He sees a saint. Because he sees the imputed holiness of God surrounding you. He can't look at you without looking through the holiness of Christ. So when you have those moments when when you are overcome with guilt and grief over your sin, you need to be reminded that in God's eyes you are holy. Not because of what you have done, but because of what Christ has done on your behalf. 
And that is beautiful. So yes, are we sinners saved by grace? Amen and amen. And yet we are also saints. We, we, we boast in being saints who are in Christ Jesus. We're not saying, look at I, I'm a saint. Look at the, the life that I'm living. No, I am a saint because I'm in Christ. And that's why we have the table here today. We remind ourselves that there was one whose body was broken. There's one whose blood was spilled so that we could be made holy. Positionally before God, we are holy. That is amazing. But I think there's a second nature here. Not only do we have a positional holiness, but we also have an obligatory holiness. We have obligations because we have confessed the Lord Jesus Christ to live a holy life. So 1 Peter 1.15, Be holy, the Lord says, as I am holy. Hebrews 12.14, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We all struggle with sin. We all have our days when sin becomes so tempting that we fall. And yet, the, the, the life of a believer should be marked not by consistently sinning or giving over ourselves to a pattern of sin into our life, but should be a, a holy life. We should be changed. Because, because what dwells in us? It's the Holy Spirit. It's changed us. So we, we fight against the lust of the flesh. We fight against greed. We fight against slander and gossip. We fight against discontentment. We fight against anxiety and fear. We fight against that because we are holy in Christ Jesus. This is one of the reasons why I, I think God has, has given the, the church the name saints is because we are all now held accountable for this word that is being preached to, to live as saints among one another. So if, if the world wants to know what it means to, to follow Christ, they, they look at the church. They look at us. Uh, recently, I, I was in a conversation with a friend, and he said um, there was a man who was a, um, an active member, a leader in his church, and in that conversation, this man who was a leader in his church, baptized in Christ, was acting like an unchristian. He was acting arrogant, he was acting spiteful, and he was acting angry. It was a phone conversation, three-way. The phone hung up, and the man on the other side said, that's, not, that's why I, I haven't stepped foot into a church for 25 years. Now, he's wrong. He should go to church because of, of what God has done for him. But I think that we have to live a life that is attractive. We have to be happy people. We have to be joyful people. We have to be holy people. My main job as your pastor is not to make you happy, but it's to help make you holy. To help you hate the sin in your life and strive towards holiness. We have obligations on it. That's just why we, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It, we come back to the table and saying, listen, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've made mistakes, but I'm identifying myself with Christ. And I'm going to renew my commitment that I'm, I'm going to walk in a, in a new way. Well, lastly, let me just kind of close with this. 
We see the, 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 the starting, the, the saints right there who are in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi. Well, let me just say this one more time before I, before I move on to this last point. Notice that it's the assumption that all the, the Christians were going to be at church. Do, do you see that? It says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Meaning that all the saints who, are, who, who love Jesus should be part of a gathering of believers. I think that's the implication there. You know, uh, I can't prove explicitly that church membership, the way we have it today, is in the Bible. But I can prove it implicitly. Meaning that the, the, the church membership is implied and assumed all over, all over the scriptures. We even see that in the next point, the structure of the church. Notice what you see here at the end. There's two positions, two offices of the church. It says, with the overseers and the deacons. In God's good providence, he, he establishes elders. It's the, the, the Greek word for uh, uh, called episkopos, where we get the, the Episcopalian church, bishops, the, the hierarchy structure there. Here it just means those who are going to be held accountable to oversee the spiritual lives of the church of the saints who are at Philippi. And notice the, the word. It's not overseer, singular. It's overseers, plural. Multiple men to govern and lead the church. Uh, listen, beloved, there, there are, are many things that are going on in people's lives right now. You know, as a pastor, one of the beauties, that, uh, one of the greatest joys I have is to stand in this pulpit and to look at you when I preach. Many days I, I come in this pulpit and I, and I look out there and pray for you, specifically. And I know that many of you have a lot of things going on in your lives right now. Things that maybe someone across the way may not know. That burden can be heavy. This is why God says it shouldn't just be one man, but it should be multiple men. Right? Who can share that load with one another and give better care to the congregation. I think there's three reasons primarily why you should have a plurality of elders or a plurality of pastors in a local church. Let me, you've heard this from me before, but let me just say it again. Number one, it's biblical. It's biblical. Every church in the New Testament, every church in the New Testament had a plurality of pastors. So when I say pastor, elder, bishop, those are all, those are all the same word in the Bible. Overseer, all the same same description. Every church had a plurality of pastors. Every church. So one, it's biblical. Two, it's just wise. It's wise for the overseer. Listen, it, it's really helpful when you have other men to lead with you, who you can share burdens with, and you can pray with, and get counsel for. In many ways, that's exactly what the deacons have have done over the last life of this church. They've had d- double responsibilities. You know, the Bible kind of spreads them out. They have overseers and they have deacons. They have ones who are called to care for the spiritual needs of the church. And they have deacons to be unleashed to, to serve the body. It's not a, a, a demotion, right? They're all equal in Christ. Some people have been called to different tasks or different roles. No one would go to, to your job and say that the, uh, that the manager is more, employ, more important than the employee. That's not the way it works. They're both valuable. They just have different roles and different different tasks. So one, it's biblical. Two, it's wise for the overseers. But two, it's wise for the saints. One of the, one of the gifts that God has given 
us is the church. He's given us to, to each other to hold us fast to Christ. So that if we start walking astray, the church, the pressure of the church, the, the love of the body will, will pull us back into Christ. So that we will not drift away, that we will not go by the ways of the world. The church will hold us fast. Well, listen, when you have multiple pastors caring for you, guess what? You get better care. You're better provided for. One of the first things that happens for college students when they, when they start looking for a college, they say, what is the, 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 the professor to, to student ratio? If you have one professor for 300 students, you're probably not going to get a lot of personal care. But if you have one professor for 25 students, well, then you're actually going to know the professor's name, and they're going to know you. They're better able to, to help you grow in that field. It's the same thing for the church. When you have multiple pastors, you get better care, better encouragement, better support, and better love. But it's biblical. So I guess as, as good Baptists who believe the Bible, we should say amen and amen. How do we do this, Pastor? Soon. Soon. Lastly, just this idea of the, the overseers, but there's also these deacons. Uh, the deacons have always been tasked to serve the church. The word deacon comes from the Greek word diakonia, which just means minister or servant. They are servants of the church. And it, the deacons that we have in our congregation consider it a privilege to serve the body. They love this church. Uh, many of them do things throughout the week that you may never see, right? They may visit someone who's discouraged that you may never know about. But ultimately, they're primarily not only serving you, they're serving the Lord Christ. They're trying to, to give him joy by ministering to the needs of our congregation. And I think if you have a church that has those two offices and you unleash the, the, the overseers, elders, pastors to oversee elder and pastor, and you have the deacons let loose to serve, the whole church is going to function better. And I think there's a lot of churches in America, especially, who do not function well because they do not follow the scripture in their church leadership. I'm excited to kind of go through this, this book of Philippians so that we can become a joyful people. And I do believe one of the ways that God in his good providence has designed so that we could be joyful is the Lord's table. We come to the Lord's table to remind ourselves that we have been forgiven in Christ. That whatever thing that we think that is, is too big in our life, sin that's too, too overwhelming, we come here and remind ourselves that Jesus Christ's body was broken and his blood was spilled to make you holy. Right? So we, we commune with God, but we don't just commune with God when we have the Lord's Supper. We commune with one another and we, we bind our hearts together. I told you several months ago that when we began doing uh, this idea of church covenant, and we have a church covenant on our books, and I've, I've given you a new one that I want to try to implement in the life of our church. I told you that every time we take the Lord's Supper, I want to read it. And I want you to think about what are things that you can commit your life to do in this body in a better way before we take the cup and the bread. So I'm going to read a church covenant. Right? This is really just the marks of a good Christian. And anything that I, that I, that I read that, that you think that there may be something out of whack in your own spiritual life, I would ask you to, to, to repent of that. Because this table is for sinners, but it's, it's for a specific kind of sinner. A repentant sinner. One who comes, as Joe said, feeble and weak need, trusting only in Christ for their salvation. So before we 
prepare the elements, hear this covenant. Having, as we trust, been, but been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to give up, our, up ourselves to him, having been baptized upon our profession of faith in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we do now, relying on his gracious aid, solemnly and joyfully renew our covenant with each other. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We will walk together in brotherly love as become the members of a Christian church, exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. We will endeavor to bring up, such as may be at any time be under our care, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and by a pure and loving example to seek the salvation of our family and friends. We will rejoice, amen, at each other's happiness. Endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We will seek by divine aid to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, and remembering that as we have been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again from a, the symbolic grave, so there is on us a special obligation now to lead a new and holy life. We will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we sustain its worship, ordinances, disciplines, and doctrines. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel to all nations. We will, when we move from this place as soon as possible, unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. As you have heard that covenant read, I pray that you prepare yourself as we take the Lord's Supper. Prepare your own heart as we come to the table. Deacons, please come forward.